Welcome to Brown Bag Green Book Book Discussion. Today we have a discussion about the greenness of urban life. And of course, we're happy to have you here on this cool, crisp afternoon. This event is sponsored by the Friends of the Library, and um, we're so happy to do that. And if you are not a member of the Friends of the Library, we would like to encourage you to become a member. Uh, We have some forms at the back for you to complete. And also, if you would like more information about these presentations, uh, we have a form for you to complete to do that also. And by the way, my name is Eleanora Williams, and I'm the new president of the Friends of the Library. Now I would like to bring Bob Becker up, who is the vice mayor of Knoxville, and he will introduce our speaker for today. Appreciate this opportunity. I actually really like the chance for for doing this today because this is a real simple one because I'm introducing somebody who really doesn't need an introduction. I think we all know Madeline. We know her well, um, which means I can talk about whatever I want to talk about, which I'm a politician. I like that. Um, And I want to talk about some other people out there, some of my heroes. I want to talk about folks like like, uh, Colin Powell who had this tremendously successful career in the military and then turned the next part of his life to helping helping kids learn through America's Promise and some real dedicated work he did. And I want to talk about uh, people like uh, Cesar Chavez, who many of y'all know of, who spent his whole life working for justice for some of the most exploited workers um, in this country and was incredibly successful about that. And I want to talk about Dolly Parton. Who, who sort of like Colin Powell had some incredible successes at a national level and made a choice to come back locally and really do some stuff to benefit the people of East Tennessee where she grew up. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Bill Haslam, um, who, you know, was gifted when he was born and has used that to oversee a, an incredible growth in the city of Knoxville, some things that we can all be really proud of. And I want to talk about the common thread that they all have. And how many folks know that common thread? Do we? There's a couple. All right. Common thread that all those people had is all four of them were wise enough to hire Madeline Rojero to work for them. Smart people, smart people, and all had incredible successes. Now, I, I could try and go into t- the successes that Cesar Chavez saw with Madeline cu- at least a couple years ago, but that would all be secondhand. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about firsthand what Madeline has done with the city of Knoxville. Realistically, the biggest controversy Bill Haslam has had in his, his career has been over the department that Madeline runs right now. Um, there were some real problems. Madeline came in, Bill was smart enough to hire her to take over a problem area and turn it into a gem in the city of Knoxville. Uh, right now, there is not controversy around this. And these are people who do low-income housing and are involved in a lot of things that should be controversial. And Madeline is so good that that's not an issue. I want to tell one last story about Madeline, my favorite Madeline story. People sometimes, they ask, Bob, are you running for the thing Madeline's running for, Um, which we all know but won't mention. And I always tell this story about Madeline. This is about two years ago. There was an issue that came up at city council, and this is why I'm not. Let me be clear. I am not running for that job. Two years ago, there was this issue that came up at a city council meeting, 7 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Um, It was about her department, and it was, you know, it, it wasn't a big issue. I got up the next day, and I thought about it a little bit, and about 1 o'clock, I had figured out here were four or five questions that we needed some information on, and we ought to think about some kind of plan for getting some people together, you know, and, and I called Madeline, 
And, hey, Madeline, how you doing? Bob, I've been thinking. Here's what I found out. And she proceeded to answer all my questions. And she proceeded to say, here's the committee that's going to be working on this, which is how Madeline is, how effective she is, um, how incredible she is, and why she is going to be really good at that next job that she will get here in the city of Knoxville. So let me, let me ask Madeline Rohara to come up and educate us all about some cool stuff. intimidated now <laughs> after that. I only wish that my mother had been here. <laughs> she would have really been pleased. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Uh, I also want to recognize um, a couple of elected officials that are here because uh, I think it's really important when we have these discussions that we have the people that actually set the policy for our city and county that, that they are here. And I see in addition to Vice Mayor Bob Becker, who obviously is a great vice mayor, <laughs> very clever, very smart. We also have City Councilman Dan Brown, yeah, County Commissioner Ed Schaus, and I also want to give a plug for former County Commissioner Finbar Saunders, who I think has been to all of these. And I have some colleagues here at the city, Bill Lyons, who's our Senior Director for Policy and Communications. Bob Wetzel, who's our Director of Redevelopment. Uh, I see Jake Tysinger, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> he's, he's relatively new here, but he's already uh, hard at work. He's a sustainability coordinator uh, with our um, sustainability department, which is under uh, Bill Lyons. Are there other city staff? I hope I haven't missed anybody. Oh, yeah, thank you. Raise your hand there, John. Well, I see uh, somebody from Knox County Health Department who's a leader in the end, uh, too, Martha Buchanan and Stephanie Welch from the Health Department who are also really leading the effort on healthy community and on community gardens. So anyway, there's a lot of stars here today, including everyone who came here to learn more about um, how our city can be greener. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is this book, Green Metropolis. And uh, this book was published last year, and it's written by a man named David Owen. He's about 55 years old. He's been a staff writer for The New Yorker uh, since 1991. And before joining The New Yorker, he was a contributing editor at The Atlantic Monthly, and prior to that, a senior writer at Harper's. He also was a contributing editor at Golf Digest, and apparently he's an avid golfer. <laughs> Uh, he's written more than a dozen books over the last 30 years. Uh, but this is his most recent book, and it was really, it grew out of an article that he wrote in The New Yorker back in 2004 called Green Manhattan. It actually starts out, I'm going to read you just the very beginning of this. He says, My wife and I got married right out of college in 1978. We were young and naive and unashamedly idealistic. And we decided to make our first home in a utopian environmentalist community in New York State. For seven years, we lived quite contentedly in circumstances that would strike most Americans as austere in the extreme. Our living space measured just 700 square feet. We didn't have a lawn, a clothes dryer, or a car. We did our grocery shopping on foot, and when we needed to travel longer distances, we used public transportation. Because space at home was scarce, we seldom acquired new possessions of significant size. 
our electric bill worked out to be about a dollar a day. The utopian community was Manhattan. <laughs> now, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. You know, he says the most people think of Manhattan as an ecological nightmare, right? That it's a wasteland of concrete, garbage, and diesel fumes. But he believes that actually, in comparison with the rest of America, there's actually a model of environmental responsibility and the greenest community in the United States. Now, how many are going to agree with that right off? <laughs> and I love New York City. I was there about a year ago. Uh, we were actually in Terrytown, which is north of New York City, for a weekend. And my husband was there on business. I went with him. And so for three days in a row, I took the commuter train in early in the morning. I went all over Manhattan. I walked I took the city bus, I took the tour bus, I took the subways, I took the, even the boat around the island, which I'd never done before. Uh, I saw it all, and I loved it. But boy, was I glad to get back to Knoxville, too. <laughs> the most devastating damage, Mr. Owen says, um, that humans have done to the environment has arisen from the burning of fossil fuels a category in which New Yorkers are practically prehistoric by comparison with other Americans, including those that live in rural areas and in the so-called eco-friendly areas of Portland and Boulder. Here's some statistics he gives. The average Manhattanite consumes gasoline at a rate that the country as a whole hasn't matched since the mid-1920s during the era of the, of the uh, Model T Ford. 82% of employed Manhattan residents, 82%, travel to work by public transit, by bicycle, or by foot. That rate is 10 times the rate for Americans in general and 8 times the rate for workers in L.A. County. Even though New York City is more populous than all but 11 states, if it were granted statehood, New York City would be 51st in per capita energy use. Uh, not only because New Yorkers drive less, but also because their dwellings are smaller with fewer large appliances. And in terms of greenhouse gases generated, the average American generates 24.5 metric tons annually. That's average. The average New Yorker, including all five boroughs, generate 30% less or 7.1 metric tons annually. So 7.1 metric tons versus the average of 24.5. And if you're a Manhattanite, you're generating even less than that. He contends that the key to New York's relative benign environmental impact is its extreme compactness. New Yorkers trade the supposed convenience of the automobile for the true convenience of proximity. He says that Manhattan's density is approximately 67,000 people per square mile, or more than 800 times that of the nation in general, and 30 times that of L.A. Now, I looked, I Googled this last night. Do we have planners here? We have our MPC planners? According to the Wikipedia, Knoxville has 1,877 residents per square mile, whereas Manhattan has 67,000. So, you know, 1,800, 1900 compared to 67,000. And by the way, I'm, what I'm going to do, I should have said this earlier, 
I'm going to go through his basic thesis here and then open it up for a question. So as, and I'm going to challenge us on some of these issues. So as, as we hear about this, what do we like for Knoxville? What do we don't like? How do we, you know, we're not New York City. I don't want to be New York City, but I do want to be more environmentally sustainable in the, in the true meaning of the word. So how do we move in that direction and uh, utilizing some of his ideas? So New York City is by no means the world's only or best example of the of environmental benefits of concentrating human populations and of mixing uses. There are many old large cities in Europe uh, where the population grew large before the automobile came into use, and they are very much uh, less wasteful than New York City. Also, there are many uh, Asian cities like Hong Kong and Singapore that are much more energy efficient. Than New York, but he focuses on New York is because it's something that we in the United States are very familiar with, and because it proves that affluent people are capable of living comfortably while consuming energy and inflicting environmental damage at levels way below the current U.S. averages. Owen criticizes those who try to open up urban spaces, some of the designers in, in, in urban towns where you want to open up the big uh, areas around buildings and such, you know, to ease the intensity of development. He criticizes those who create open spaces around structures. Uh, he criticizes our efforts to relieve traffic congestion. <laughs> he criticizes our efforts to reduce the time that drivers spend searching for parking spaces. And he criticizes increasing the areas in, you know, in urban areas that are devoted to parks, greenery, gardening, etc. He says that these mostly undermine the city's extraordinary efficiency. It is density and proximity that promote the utility of walking and public transit. He argues that urban density in itself is a powerful generator of environmental benefits. The biggest negative so-called environmental issues, he says, in an urban area are actually law enforcement and public education. He says because because concerns about crime and school quality are among the strongest forces that promote flight to the suburbs. We'll get back to that in a minute. So he knows that all of this is counterintuitive. Uh, One assumes that sustainable living is easier in a rural township where local produce is plentiful and every backyard has a compost bin. That's what we would think, right? That's going to be a more sustainable life. But this is wrong, he says. Sustainable living is actually much harder in small, far-flung places than in dense cities. The per capita consumption is much lower in dense cities. The rural dweller generally has a much larger carbon footprint. Why? Because there's a long distance to drive for even the basics, and single-family homes use so much more energy. The environmental lessons that New York City offers are not necessarily easy to apply, but he summarizes them this way. Basically, they live smaller, they live closer, and they drive less. In terms of living smaller, the average American single-family house doubled in size in the second half of the 20th century, while at the same time, the average American household shrunk. So as our size of our households are going down, the size of our house is going up. In contrast, in New York City, real estate values were actually reducing the living space of the average Manhattan resident. 
Oversized, under-occupied dwellings permanently raised the world's demand for energy and encouraged careless consumption of all kinds. In the long run, big empty houses are no more sustainable than SUVs or private jets, no matter how many um, photovoltaic panels they have on their roofs, he says. Okay, in terms of living closer, the main key to lowering energy consumption and shrinking the carbon footprint is to shrink the distances between where people, uh, between the places where people live, work, shop, and play. Manhattan-style development reduces the vehicle miles traveled, makes transit and walking feasible, increases the efficiency of energy production and consumption, and limits the need to build superfluous uh, public infrastructure and cuts the demand for environmentally doomed extravagances such as riding lawnmowers and household irrigation systems. I'm not going to ask who has a riding lawnmower here. (laughs) The world, he says, uh, needs to pursue land-use strategies that promote high-density, mixed-use urban development rather than sprawl. So then his third piece is drive less. So we had live smaller, live closer, and now drive less. Making autos more fuel efficient isn't necessarily a bad idea, he says, but it won't solve the world's energy and environmental dilemmas. The real problem with cars is not that they don't get enough miles to the gallon. It's that they make it too easy for people to spread out, which encourages wasteful sprawl development. Most so-called environmental initiatives concerning autos are actually counterproductive, he says, because their effect is to make driving less expensive, like the new hybrid that I bought, okay? I, you know, I get more miles to the gallon. But if I actually end up driving my car more miles because of that, I'm not really gaining anything, right? The key in terms of energy conservation and environmental protection is to make driving costlier and less pleasant. Now I'm going to ask all the elected officials if they think that (laughs) that's what their constituents are going to be asking for. (laughs) In the long run, miles matter more than miles per gallon. And as we make cars more efficient, we need to compensate by driving less. We gain no benefit if fuel efficiency in cars results in our driving more, which has actually been the case in recent years. Owen also says that the environmental movement, and I know there are a lot of environmental activists in this room, and I count myself as one. He says that the environmental movement from the beginning has been hostile towards densely populated cities. He then goes on to talk about liquid civilization, which is basically oil, right? That um, every serious discussion about the environment is ultimately about oil. Most of the environmental problems we currently face are the result of oil's prodigious abundance during the 20th century, and most of the problems we're going to face going forward will be oil's increasing scarcity and cost during uh, the 21st century. I'm not going to go into all of that because it's stuff that we've heard many times about oil, but, and he goes into a lot of history about fossil fuels and how we use it today and all of our products, including, you know, most of what we wear, the items in our desk, in our room, in our house, and even in food that we eat foods that have uh, petroleum, you know, products in them. Read about the Twinkie. Have you all read the book about the, uh, all the ingredients in a Twinkie? That's out there today. I've read it. It's pretty alarming, <laughs> the number of petroleum products that are actually in a Twinkie. 
he concludes that the consequence of oil's increasing scarcity and cost is that we are ultimately going to have to figure out how to be less dependent on our autos. And Manhattan's example is instructive because per capita auto use has always been extremely low in Manhattan, regardless of how high or low the price of oil is. Owen then talks about that we tend to think of cars as an urban or suburban phenomenon, but actually the most enthusiastic car customers back in the uh, 20s was really out in the rural areas. Uh, The people in the cities didn't have them at that time. He said by 1920, when driving was still relatively uncommon in our cities, more than half of all farm households in the Midwest had a car. And that car ownership spread rapidly throughout the U.S. in the late 40s and the early 50s, and of course has continued to grow. In 2001, for the first time, the number of automobiles in the United States has exceeded the number of licensed drivers. So many of us not only have one car, but we have two or more cars, right? But he says cars don't just consume a lot of gasoline each day. They enable people to live in ways that are unavoidably inefficient. Cars have propelled us away from centers of density and to an energy-dependent train of civic infrastructure. Government absorbs the cost of more local roadways, longer water and electrical lines, larger sewer systems. It funds uh, public services to new residents who live farther and farther out. And those new residents need police, fire protection, more schools, libraries, trash removal, etc. That's why he contends that even though a hybrid car may cut personal auto fuel consumption, it doesn't address the larger intractable problems that sprawl has created. And just as life in Manhattan is inherently energy efficient, life in suburbs and beyond is inherently wasteful. So here's, um, you can see how many punches he pulls right here. He says here that a sprawling suburb is a fuel-burning, carbon-belching, waste-producing, water-guzzling, pollution-spewing, toxin-leaking machine, And unlike a Hummer, it cannot easily be abandoned for something smaller and less destructive. (laughs) Like I said, he pulls his punches. Uh, We spent a century erecting this way of life. Now we must reconfigure it. And by the way, he does talk some about uh, Henry Ford and Frank Lloyd Wright saying that both of them actually were anti-urbanist. And they saw cars as a way to get away from that dirty, ugly, congested city. And they actually promoted that, you know, very, very heavily. Uh, Owen also, you know, he's gonna, he slays a lot of um, sacred cows in, in terms of urban planning and the environmental movement. And, and the next one he slays here is uh, traditional zoning. He said that spreading out is the concept at the heart of virtually all traditional zoning ordinances, even though, ironically, the first zoning ordinance was in New York, New York City. But the, there was so much density by the time the zoning ordinances came into being that it didn't have the same effect as it did in many of our other communities that, that came along later. This is what he says about zoning. Standard zoning regulations prohibit or sharply limit almost every characteristic that Jane Jacobs, you remember Jane Jacobs, uh, Life and Death of Great American Cities, Every characteristic that Jane Jacobs celebrated as the irreducible ingredients of urban vitality and that the Sierra Club has identified as tools for reducing and reversing sprawl. Zoning tends to fully separate residential and commercial uses, 
to move buildings farther apart and farther from streets and sidewalks, to force low-density development by limiting building height and lot coverage, and to require the creation of oversized parking facilities, which move buildings still farther apart, usually making them inaccessible to anyone who isn't driving. Uh, The increased personal mobility provided by cars had already made density unnecessary, as Henry Ford and Frank Lloyd Wright had both realized. Now zoning rules often made density legally impossible. We'll get to talking like some of the neighborhood folks who are actively addressing issues of zoning and how we protect our neighborhoods from encroachment and such. That's how I got my start in community involvement, really, was around neighborhood issues and neighborhood preservation. And I think that issue of how we are zoned today versus what we are facing in the future, uh, we, need a, we need a new paradigm. We, I'm not suggesting we need New York City's paradigm, but I'd like to have some discussion about what that new paradigm is, how we move from the traditional. And I know we have form-based codes that are start to address that, and Bob, maybe you can talk about that in a minute. He also talks about the allure of the car. A car is speed and sex and power and emancipation. Cars have defined our culture and our lives. They have gotten bigger and fancier, you know, with more doodads and techno features than one can imagine. I drove the same Subaru for 14 years. I mentioned I just bought a hybrid Ford Escape, and I couldn't believe all the, the gadgets and the, the features that you, can, that you can get just for the standard model even. So he talks about with that allure of the car, how do we then turn drivers into public transit passengers? He said that the price of oil and gas is not sufficient enough if cities have not developed in such a way to make efficient transit possible. One of the few areas of the country to have experienced real sustained growth in transit over a significant period of time is New York. From 1996 to 2000, their ridership on buses and subways grew by 29%. And then from 2003 to 07, it grew by 8.8%. He said that the key, more than anything else, more significant than fare levels, you know, the bus fare levels, and the uh, demographics or willpower is population density, once again. You need density to support public transit. He says the threshold is about seven dwelling units per acre. He says people often say that they want public transit, but they aren't willing to zone their areas to achieve the density they need to support it. You can't afford to run buses where there are half-acre lots. And a lot of people, even in Knoxville, a lot of people say, how come the bus doesn't come to my neighborhood? Well, you know, there's a lot of inefficiencies in running our our system. And uh, the the less dense we are, the more inefficient it is. He said the second key to successful public transit, in addition to the density, is a lack of palatable alternatives. Owning and driving a car in New York City is almost ridiculously disagreeable. <laughs> That's the key. So I'm thinking about all the parking stuff that we, you know, the way we try to make parking better. And again, we'll talk about that because Knoxville is different than, than New York City. We're still trying to get people downtown, right? And so we approach it a little differently now. But in New York City, parking is scarce, it's expensive, driving is slow. Many times you can walk faster. You know, it's one of the few places that people say, let's walk, we'll get there before the cab does, right? In urban areas there are, um, that are dense enough to support efficient public transit, officials often negate their own efforts to increase usage by spending a lot of money to actually make it easier for people to get along in cars. And 
urban cities, when there's traffic congestion, they, you know, widen roads, they make it easier, they build bypasses and, and things. And so it makes it easier to, to actually use a car rather than, you know, making public transit more um, effective and more available for use. New transit, if it is to succeed, has to be accompanied not only by population density, but also by a reduction in road capacity to maintain a level of inconvenience that a significant amount of drivers will find intolerable or a steady increase in the direct and indirect cost of actually using cars. So I want, uh, Bob, I want you to use that the next time somebody calls uh, and says, well, our goal is to make your driving intolerable in the city of Knoxville. (laughs) Yeah, you're referring to me? All right. (laughs) You said public transit itself can be bad for the environment if it facilitates rather than discourage a sprawl. So even public transit. Now, when might that happen? When they extend lines further out in some cities where they extend the lines very far out to areas that aren't dense, and then it just encourages a lot more sprawl you know, out in those areas. Transit must be used to concentrate people in dense urban cores rather than merely, merely encouraging them to live farther from their jobs and other daily destinations. He also takes... Uh, hit at the little small, the city cars, the, the smaller cars that are being developed today to be able, easier to park and stack and such in, in dense cities. He said, residents of dense urban cores largely get by without cars now. What would be gained by turning those people into drivers of high-tech golf carts? Um, that those cars are better used actually in the suburban and rural areas where, you know, uh, he says 120-pound um, soccer mom doesn't need a big Toyota Land Cruiser to get around. You know, a smaller compact car might work. Uh, He also then talks about the great outdoors. Um, He says that the increasingly sedentary American way of life is more a symptom of low-density car-dependent development than a cause. In other words, the low-density car-dependent development came first, and that's what has made us um, so sedentary. There is a growing tendency to stay indoors. He, he calls it videophilia. You know, that we're all in front of the TV, the video, the Nintendo, the uh, computers, Googling, you know, YouTube, all the stuff that we find much more interesting than actually walking and going outside. And even in a lot of, a lot of people move out to, you know, the rural areas or to the suburbs to get away from the, that city density. But how many times do we drive through neighborhoods and nobody's out in the yard unless perhaps they're mowing the yard? How much do we really get out there and enjoy? He talks about embodied efficiency. He says that um, environmentalists have long characterized large urban buildings as being intrinsically wasteful because they represent a high level of embodied energy. There was so much that, that it took to build that building. And they consider that elevator shafts and other mechanical systems um, are kind of a waste, wasted interior space. And because such large buildings place intense stress on sewers, power grids, and sewer systems. But he argues that the most truly significant environmental fact about urban buildings is, once again, density. And that density creates the same kinds of energy and emission benefits in individual structures as it does in a whole community. Tall, multi-story buildings are green, whether their designers intended them to be or not, because they expose less exterior surface per square foot, 
They present less of themselves to the elements. Their compact roofs absorb less heat from the sun during the cooling season and radiate less heat from inside during the heating season. Plus, tall buildings help create the concentrations of people and uses which are necessary to sustain far greater environmental benefits, such as efficient transit systems, compact networks of civic services, and they limit the duplication of freeways, schools, power stations, sewage treatment, all those other things that we get with sprawl development. He says that these tall, urban, large urban buildings have embodied efficiency that is a better measure of their overall environmental impact over the building's lifetime. He's severely critical of uh, the Spring Nextel headquarters in a suburb of Kansas City. Apparently it's gotten a lot of government awards and U.S. Green Building Council awards because of the all of the green features in the development. And he says that ultimately, you know, it's out in the suburb, and so any of those benefits, that's all nice, but all of these employees are driving long distances to get there, and they would have been uh, smarter and more green to have actually built that in the in Kansas City, uh, which would have eliminated a lot of those inefficiencies of, of sprawl development. He also takes on um, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which you probably know is one of the most respected environmental organizations in the world, whose mission is to drive the efficient and restorative use of resources. He says that the RMI Mountainside headquarters in, um, like, Snowmass, I think, Colorado, Colorado, that it is an even worse environmental example than the Sprint campus because it was built in a fragile remote location on virgin land and that most employees, delivery trucks, snow plows, maintenance crews, all the folks that go there have to service that, drive long distances to get there. He says it's sprawl. He also then takes on LEED. Who knows about LEED? Right? We all know about LEED. He says that there's pros and cons to LEED, um, that it honors building technology while largely ignoring the considerable environmental problems caused by even the greenest of the buildings when they are located in um, sprawl development, again, like this, the Sprint campus. And I'm a LEED supporter. We've, we've um, encouraged the building of several LEED buildings in, uh, in Knoxville, in the city. But, so I want to talk about this some with some of our LEED people that are here. But he says that LEED has a fundamental weakness in that it is not a comprehensive, objective assessment of true environmental impact, but a values-laden incentive system that encourages projects um, that adhere to a very particular view of the environment and to a very particular view of high-end real estate development. He says a lot of it's more about the add-ons and, and such than about really thinking overall the impact this development has in a community and not just the individual building. He talks about a phrase that was coined five years ago called lead brain. You heard that, Beth? Um, which is what happens when the potential PR benefits of certification begin driving the design process and the design team becomes obsessed with getting the points regardless of whether they add real environmental value. But I know that the U.S. Green Building Council, I mean, this is an evolving process, you know, in terms of figuring out how we do this best. So, but that's another uh, um, sacred cow that he tacked here. He thinks that the mantra of all environmentalists ought to be, if it isn't boring, it isn't green. You know, he doesn't go for all the big high-tech, the fancy add-ons and all. He goes, it really, basically, it's boring. Adding attic insulation is one of the best things you can do, right? You've got to take care of those kinds of things first. And I know our lead architects will say that, too. So finally, he talks about the shape of things to come. So how do we really save the earth, he asks. Uh, we need to think more critically about what really makes a difference. Do we recycle more, use green products, appliances in our homes, buy hybrid cars? Yes, perhaps. 
but only if we first reduce our consumption. Drive less, take the bus, live in smaller homes, caulk leaky windows before you buy all the new fancy windows. (laughs) Don't fall for the greenwashing that is so prevalent. Everything's green, right? Every product you pick up on the shelf now claims to be green. How do we encourage this? This is really a controversial part, I think. He says that the way we encourage uh, reduced consumption is to maintain the price of energy at artificially high levels and eliminate the many structural incentives that lead to the creation of inherently wasteful communities. Impose taxes, fees, and land use regulations that reverse the relentless growth of reckless energy consumption. A truly green economy, he says, is certain to be a smaller economy than the one we are used to. Uh, He says, focus on the old-fashioned quality of life issues such as education, culture, crime, street noise, bad smells, resources for the elderly, availability of recreational facilities. Focus on these in our urban cities and there won't be the need to leave for the sprawl. And for planners and engineers, he says, uh, don't focus on regulations that favor cars or make life better for drivers. Rather, focus on making life in general better. So, as you recall, the book began with the author telling us how he lived in a utopian community in New York City. But what we learn early on during the, in this book is that six years after moving there, he and his wife moved away to live in a rural Connecticut town to raise their family, a town and house that is car-dependent and very energy and efficient. So despite all that he has said in this book, he has no regrets about moving away, he says. And therein lies the problem, it seems to me. Understanding the problem is one thing. We all not, you know, most of us, we heard this. This makes sense, right? But making the necessary lifestyle changes is still the biggest challenge, isn't it? That's what it all comes down to. And I think uh, you can criticize him for saying one thing and doing another, but many of us do the same thing, right? We all, we, what, what do we... Uh, We make our choices on what we're going to consume less and what sacrifices we're going to make and what we just aren't willing to do yet. So I don't really criticize him. I think he's just uh, an example of the struggle that we all have right now in deciding how we actually do uh, build a more sustainable life and the the choices that we make. So that is his thesis. This is his book. And so I want to open it up for some discussion. How relevant are these recommendations to Knoxville? In, in terms of relevance, um, specifically in Knox County, I don't know much of the specifics of the East Sector Plan, but I'm sure you do. Uh, compare that in, in relation to his recommendations that he makes. Uh, I'm sure you're talking about the Midway Park, yeah. Well, um, he's talking a lot about, first of all, where you live, but, but also if that's going to take a lot of people to drive a long distance out to work, you know, then he's going to see a lot of inefficiencies in that. Uh, he doesn't actually talk much about industrial and com- you know, economic development. Uh, obviously, some places need space, but he would push for more dense development and not moving way out in the, in the uh, suburbs and the rural areas. I think the linchpin to what you have discussed, in my opinion, is public transportation. I know you looked at emoji talking about walking. I use public transportation whenever possible. Mm-hmm. I think we're about five years behind in public transportation here where we could have been, and here's the reason why. As, as you well know, when the previous administration went out of office, the deal had already been done to have a new transit center in the 500 block of Gay Street. 
but that wasn't what the new administration or the winning administration, I should say, and the downtown developers wanted. I disagree with that, but I get it. To the victor goes the spoils, no, no pun intended. However, <laughs> however, we've got to have political will to make any of this stuff happen. And let me give you, give you an analogy. Maybe not this year, but I know during the previous years, through no fault of their own, Knoxville Area Transit came to city council and said, hey, we need about $50,000 for fuel cost." Through no fault of their own, nothing that they could help. I'm using a rough number. It may have been a little more, may have been a little less. But I never saw more heartburn or hand-wringing. Now, perhaps with the two Bs of the three Bs on council being the exception here that are present. However, when we talk about building garages, the only thing I see is how can we go forward? But in the end, for anybody who's ever built parking garages or been in the business, and I have, when it's all said and done, a garage space comes out to about $10,000 a space. Now, those are old figures, probably more than that now. But we're more than willing, we, the political body, are more than willing to do something like that, but have real, real, real difficulty putting more money in the coffers for fuel, something that we need. So to me, until we get a political body that has the political will to fund public transportation better, we're not going to get much more than what we have. And I agree that I think certainly that's a linchpin to improving uh, city living. Yeah. Let me uh, address that in two ways. One is that I, I don't have the numbers with me, Bill, Bill Lines may, but in this administration, we have actually increased the amount of dollars going to CAT significantly. Nine million additional dollars over the last seven years then. Um, and I don't know what percentage that is of their total budget. But there has actually been a commitment to transit um, by this administration. And in, there are disagreements about where that um, place should have been, where the transit center should have been, you know, located, which were all, you know, there's legitimate arguments on both sides. But there actually has been a very strong commitment, and, and CAT has gotten a lot of additional funding. And I would say, I've always said about political will, that political will alone doesn't do it. You have to have community will. Community will is what builds political will. You know, you want leaders, but also leaders are going to look. And, and there are a lot of people that are going to come and say, we need a parking garage. You know, and other people are going to say, we need more transit. And so people who feel strongly about this need to organize themselves need to be at the meetings, need to be uh, talking to the, the mayor or the elected officials to talk about this, because there are both sides to that. There are people that could care less about transit in our community. They're not going to use it. They don't need it. They're not going to do it by choice. And I do think that leadership has to look at those who don't have voice and has to step up and make some of the tough decisions, even if there isn't strong community will, if you know it's the right thing overall for people. But community will is important. So every one of us has a responsibility there. And just on the way out, I'll say, I think we've done what we've had to do, but not nearly as much as what we could have done and should have. Um, Regarding the issue of integrating commercial development into residential development, Mm -hmm. um, I I personally don't have any problem with that. I think what one of the things most people object to is that most commercial development is frankly so but ugly. <laughs> um, and if you look at cities, and I have to admit I have not been to either one for several years, but if you look at cities like San Francisco and Paris where commercial establishments are well integrated even into upscale neighborhoods, they aren't 
littered with neon signs all over the place. They don't stick out like sore thumbs. They um, blend into the residential environment. I think it would be wonderful to live in a neighborhood like that where that happens, but we have to put more controls on the appearance of commercial establishments in order to accomplish that. Right. Bob, can you just very briefly, if you don't mind, and talk about form-based zoning and how that kind of... Yeah, just about how the commercial is often so ugly and... And the idea of form-based zoning, which we are actually starting to utilize, if, if, you, if the motion sure. would mind for yeah. a second. A couple of things. I think one thing that to remind everybody, the downtown area is, very, is, is a very mixed-use retail commercial area right now, and that's our C2 zone, which basically takes a lot of restrictions off, off of things. It is truly a mixed-use zone we have in the city. We've seen more of that in the downtown north area as well, moving in that direction. The, the, the Cumberland Avenue plan and the uh, downtown north plan incorporate lots of things that this book has talked about. It's the idea of reducing the lanes from four lanes down to three lanes, uh, trying to enhance public transportation in those areas, and to create mixed-use uh, residential and commercial zones through the form base code, which will, uh, and all of those, move towards more density and a mixing of uses, and we are trying to get those on the books. We've been in a three-year internal process, and we still haven't got there yet because there's a lot to administer in something totally new, but we are on the cutting edge of doing that in the city, and we're moving forward with it at this time. So, Thank you. Does that help? And, and I also, is Terry Faulkner still here? Yeah, Terry. Yeah, um, maybe, I don't know if you'll want to speak to this later, but um, again, this whole idea, I know we've just gone through a whole effort about R4, which is about sort of those that border between commercial in uh, some neighborhoods and, and the residential and what's appropriate. And I know my, you know, my mother-in-law uh, lived in a row house in Baltimore, and she didn't drive, and every day she would walk down to the corner market to get the food for dinner that night and, and, and walk back. It's not the same as having a Kroger at the end of, my, of Woodlawn Pike. You know, it's a different concept altogether. And so, again, you know, where we are versus where they are, there's a big gap. And what's the middle ground or how do we take what we like about our development now and figure out how through um, the appropriate placing and design and such of of, of a commercial, say, make it more of a walkable community and where cars are needed less. Umosha, you've been very patient. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good presentation. Uh, when gas went to uh, $2 a gallon, I decided I would not have a car any longer. Mm -hmm. So I've been pretty much walking since that time. Mm -hmm. I do about 10 miles a day, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of fun. And what I'm excited about in Knoxville is that when I'm walking, I see a lot of our elected officials walking, mm -hmm. riding their bike, and uh, policymakers doing that particular thing. I see Bill Lyons all the time. He does a lot of walking. And I see uh, Bob. He owns his bicycle a lot. And love to see the vice mayor. So I see a lot of people walking. And that, as, as Madeline was saying, that, that's important. Because when you have people, for sure, our, our mayor, he rides his bike and he runs everywhere. You see, I run into him all the time at different places. So that's really good. That's real positive about our community. When we have a new child in our family, one of the exciting things we always talk about is, she walked. Oh, <laughs> you know, she, she's walking. That's right. And then we pick them up, put them in the car, and we drive. <laughs> you know. So, so after, that, after that, you know, exciting occasion, they walk no more. We never walk anymore. You know, we, we, we drive every place. So my recommendation personally is let's walk. 
Yeah. I mean, park your car mm -hmm. and walk. I'm suggesting that when we close the Henley Street Bridge, mm -hmm. that we put a toll on the Gay Street Bridge. <laughs> it's just 25 cents to go and 25 cents to come back. That means we make 20, 20 grand a day mm -hmm. on going back and forth across the Gay Street Bridge. Give the money to cash. Well, that, I'm suggesting we give it to non-private organizations. <laughs> that's, that's my suggestion, that it go to non-private organizations or anybody we deem you know, necessary. But that's my suggestion. So thank you. Thank you, Moshe. One of the many points that you made that uh, I guess I had some issue with would be when you were talking about creating open spaces in the city, and that was a point of contention. If New York City is the most green city in the United States, and in Manhattan it's the most green borough, there are a lot of parks, including Central Park, which is enormous. No, and, and you know, that, that's a good point. And he actually criticizes Central point, a Park. I didn't get into that. He actually thinks it's too big. It's not placed in a good position because it's used on the edges, but there's a lot in the inside that isn't used or that you really can't see. Uh, there are people that don't use it to its capacity, whereas he says there's other parks in in Manhattan and in New York City that are along the edges of the river, which he says are perfect because those are already borders anyway. He says don't create artificial borders in the middle of a dense city with parks. Instead, keep the flow of traffic and people and such and put those parks more on the edges. And I think about Chicago. I lived in Chicago. The, um, the Lakeshore Park. You know, that's just, that's used a lot. It's placed beautifully and it doesn't, it's not in the middle of the city but on the edge. But yeah, but well, right. Parks I would just are disagree. That's that's yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's his that's his philosophy. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yeah, but that's a that's a good point. A lot of people will disagree with him on that. I think. But, I'm Terry Faulkner and have worked since '89 in the Beeren community to help create a sustainable urban environment. And we moved there in. 66 and we had 800 square feet <laughs> and we lived on a street that was half rental in an older neighborhood that was deteriorating that had been built in the 30s and 40s and i know a lot of you are familiar with this story because you're doing the same thing and i'm going to say that a lot of the success that we have had has has been and i see the advantage in connections is we probably had the second biggest dense area in the city next to Fort Sanders. We had the integration of apartments, uh, neighborhoods, all kinds of ethnic groups, all kinds of ethnic stores, but we had no infrastructure to access neighborhoods to the commercial. And since 1989, which is when the five neighborhoods within the Bearden community were able to stabilize themselves through good zoning, through traffic control, the people that are vested in a community are generally the homeowners. They're not going to be moving. And those are the ones where you're going to get your community leaders and you're going to get the wisdom as to what works in a neighborhood. And they need to be listened to. And there's one connection. They need to have a good relationship with the, the planning commission because they know what works in our neighborhoods and they need to be listened to. The other thing is I think we, when we were able to get our infrastructure, which we got state, federal, all kinds of city funding, to put our infrastructure together after we had a small area plan done for our area. 
So we were able to get sidewalks, greenways that connected, connected parts, connected to the downtown. We're about two miles from downtown. So we are an area that are going to help feed the downtown and make it successful. And we were able to work with TDOT. We got public transit, sidewalks, greenways, lots of trees with the help of public service and Bob Wetzel because it's got to be pleasant and it's got to be as cool as possible when it's 100 degrees. And we've also worked with 175 businesses, with the university, with state agencies, TDOT, to build the public transits and to, for developers have invested in building sidewalk connections that connect to the greenways. We've got lots of free sidewalks and this is not mandated by zoning for them to do this and to coordinate their landscaping. And these have been the community leaders that have invested the huge amount of time to do all this are the ones that have lived in these established neighborhoods that are no longer threatened in any way by zoning. Uh, we've got good traffic calming now, etc. Okay. So, uh, again, and I think this connects this connects the different status of people with different economic groups, just like when you travel in Europe. You meet mm-hmm. the baker, meet the shopkeeper. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of community. That works really well. So I think it's important to look at each area on its own merits and to build from that area. They're all different. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Tara. It's a good example of where community will has really has really made change in, in that part of our town. I want to uh, thank you all for being here and for the, the comments, the discussion. I hope this is just the beginning uh, in Knoxville for this kind of discussion, where we are now, how we become more sustainable, what works for us, you know, knowing what works for someplace like New York City um, and and other cities and across the world, you know, can give us some guidance. But clearly it's going to take a lot of community will, a lot of political will to make the changes that, that are needed. And I look forward to working with all of you on that. And thank you to the library. I think this series is so fabulous. It's, It's really great. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.